From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parish. Today is Monday, May 16, 2022, and I am your host for DBP, Rabbi Ari Solish. Looking forward to an exciting week of Torah study. We do this every day, and we study the sections that the section or sections that are associated with the day. And so today, being Monday, we're going we're going to study section one and hopefully two of the Torah portion. Now, what is the parish of the week? The parish of the week is Bahar. Torah portion is Bahar, at least in America, in the diaspora it's Bahar. In Israel, we got something else going on, but but no worries about that. We've got this, uh, we've got the diaspora covered over here. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. We're going to jump right in. Torah reading for Bahar. This is Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to begin with verse number one. Bahar means on the mountain. It really means in the mountain, but it here means on the mountain, as you will see. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, look at that, we're back to Sinai. It's been a while. It's been a while since we were talking about Mount Sinai. It's been like a book or two, or a book, as it were. Um, and here the Torah says, by the way, these laws that we're about, to, we're about to read were actually told by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses went up after the giving of the Ten Commandments and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? What was he doing? Yeah. Some people think, let me tell you what some people think. Some people think that, you know, Moses had worked very hard. Think about it. He had stood up to Pharaoh. He had facilitated the plagues. He led the people out of Egypt, he shepherded them through the splitting of the sea. He got them to Mount Sinai and he stood there by the mountain as God delivered the Ten Commandments. Moses, if nothing else needed, a vacation, a little R&R. So you would think, Moses, you know, what are you going to do? Everyone's around. Where are you going to go? Into the desert. Everyone's there. So you have a little mountain, mountains, mountaintop vacation, a little cabin on top of the mountain, great views of the, of, of the desert. And so maybe he took some R&R for 40 days, but that's not what happened. For those 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was working nonstop in listening to God's commands regarding the Torah and the mitzvot. And this was ultimately penned and forms the Torah as we have it. So the Torah is emphasizing here that these laws that we're about to study, they come from Sinai as well. They come from those communications that God had with Moses on top of the mountain. So, let's read this inside. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them, When you come to the land that I am giving you, this refers, of course, to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, the land shall rest a Sabbath to the Lord. Listen to this. When you come to the land that I am giving you, the land should rest. Vishav Saha Eretz, Shabbat, 
the land itself should have a Shabbat. Now we have a Shabbat every seven days. The land has a Shabbat every seven years. Not every seven days, every seven years. As the Torah proceeds to explain. You may sow your field for six years. And for six years you may prune your vineyard. And gather in its produce. So for six years your field is yours. You can plow, you can sow, you can prune, you can harvest, you can gather, you can whatever you want. Go nuts. By the way, time out, quick time out. Let's spike the ball for a second and remind you, remind all of us, that last week's Torah portion, we read about some agricultural commandments to farmers, i.e. leaving the corner of the field, not gathering up all the bundles, leaving the forgotten bundles behind, etc., leaving them for the poor and for the needy. So all of that is in place. But for six years, your fields are yours. It's yours. Leave some to others, but it's yours. However, verse 4, but in the seventh year, the land shall have a complete rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Look at that. Three times it says Shabbat in this verse. Shabbat, Shabbaton, Yelaretz. Shabbat, Lashem. Shabbat, Shabbaton, Shabbat. It should have a rest of a rest, a rest to God. You're with me on this? God is really invested in the land not being worked on that seventh year. And what does it mean that the land should have a rest and a rest to God? It means you shall not sow your field, nor shall you prune your vineyard. Don't plant, don't prune. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest. Well, I didn't plant, but it already grew. You can't, you can't take it in. And you shall not pick the grapes you had set aside for yourself. For it shall be a year of rest for the land. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. In some verses it says that the rest is for the land. And in some verses it says that the rest is for God. The question is, which one is it? Is it beneficial for the land? Is it for, what's the purpose of the rest? Is it for the land or for God? You know what the answer is? Obviously, both. Right? On the one hand, it's a rest for the land because the land itself is benefited. Studies have shown, right? We know this for a fact, that when you rest the land, when the land uh, is able to lay fallow, it's a benefit to the land. It, it actually enhances the land. So it's going to benefit the land itself. But at the same time, it also is for God. Why? Because as we'll see throughout this theme, throughout this, this mitzvah, the major idea here of, uh, this is called the Shemitah, the main idea of the mitzvah of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, is that we're reminded that we don't own the land, God owns the land. By relinquishing ownership of the land, essentially ownership of the land every seven years, we're reminded that indeed, the land belongs to a divine owner. There's a big boss, and it's not us. We may be stewards of the land. We may officially have a government title to the land. But you know what? It's God's land. God created the land. God created people. God created everything. It's God's land. All right. Let's continue verse 6. We're going to go back with Rashi's. Um, let's welcome Mark. Hey, Mark. Great to see you. Okay, back inside. Verse number six. And the produce of the Sabbath of the land shall be yours to eat for you, for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker 
and the resident who live with you. And all its produce may be eaten also by your domestic animals and by the beasts that are in your land. And you shall count for yourself seven sabbatical years. Seven years, seven times. Seven rounds of seven. And if we do the math, we run the numbers, the days of these seven sabbatical years shall amount to 49 years for you. Right? If you do seven cycles of seven years, that's a total of 49 years. Now, what's, where are we going with this? So in addition to Shemitah, we have the midst of Yovel. Yovel is the Jubilee year. Every 50 years is a Jubilee year. So you count seven times seven. And every seventh year is a sabbatical year. So the seventh sabbatical year is year 49. And immediately following is called the Jubilee year, the Yovel year. That's year 50. As the Torah continues to say, you shall proclaim with the shofar blast in the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, you shall sound the shofar throughout your land. Right? The onset of the 50th year on Yom Kippur, that's when you sound the shofar to proclaim this year throughout the land. And you shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim freedom for slaves throughout the land for all who live on it. It shall be a jubilee for you. Hence the name jubilee year, Yovel. In Hebrew, Yovel. In English, Jubilee. And you shall return each man to his property and you shall return each man to his family. It's an incredible mitzvah, this Jubilee year, which we'll break down right now. In the Jubilee year, all indentured servants are freed. All land that was sold away from the ancestral territories, all land in Israel goes back to its original owners. Every man goes back to his property and every man goes back to his family. That doesn't mean gender specific. It just means every person gets his property and every person gains his freedom, his liberty. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow, nor shall you reap its aftergrowth or pick its grapes that you would set aside for yourself, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy for you. You shall eat its produce from the field. During this jubilee year, you shall return each man to his property. What we have here is something fascinating. There's Shemitah and then there's Yovel. There's sabbatical years and then there is the jubilee year. And when you count seven sabbatical years, it's 49 years, then next year is jubilee. And if you run the math, you don't have to run the math. If you think about it, what happens? Year 49, are you working the land? Remember, year 49. No. What about year 50? Also not. Two years in a row. Are you with me? Every 50 years, you have really a double header of, of sabbatical years. You have the 49th year, which is a sabbatical year, and the 50th year, which is a jubilee year, which is like a sabbatical year on steroids, essentially. So you have two years in a row in which you're not planting, not sowing, not reaping, not harvesting. None of that stuff is happening for two years in a row, year 49 and 50. And by the way, the obvious question is, how do we survive? How does that work? How, how are we surviving? Whether it's one year in seven or whether it's two years in a row back to back, 49 years, 40 years, 49 and 50. How do we survive? You're a farmer. How do you make money? It's not your field. You can't plant. You can't harvest. How do you make money? How, how does it work? How do you survive? 
You know what the answer is? We believe in God. That's the answer. I know it sounds reckless to say that we don't have a plan either. It's like, we believe in God, therefore no safety net. As the Torah will tell us, God will provide, if we fulfill this mitzvah, God will pro- provide in year six enough food enough, and, and enough money to cover year six, year seven, and year eight. God is going to give a trifold blessing if we keep this mitzvah. In other words, it all goes back to faith and trust in God. Do we believe that God is real? If you and I believe that God is real, and God, and when I say God is real, not theoretically, but like real, 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 really real, and that God is so omnipotent that there's not, it's not like God doesn't have enough, doesn't have enough money for me or for you. God has plenty of resources. If we believe this, if we trust this, and God says, look, I got this. I just, I just want you not to do that. Right? Just don't, don't plant and don't harvest the field once every seven years and, you know, year 49 and 50 in the cycle. Just, just don't touch it. I got you. I got you. Just don't touch it. Do you trust? Do you trust? That's the qu- simple question. Do you trust? Do you trust God? The money says in God we trust. It's not about the money. It's about you and I. Do we really trust in God? It's like I've told the story before. I love the story. Story with the Rebbe where this fellow was going into a business and he asked the Rebbe for a blessing and the Rebbe said, you know what? I don't mind being a partner with you in the business. I'll give a blessing, maybe put down some cash. I'll be a partner. I don't know if he put, yeah, he put down some money. I mean, you know, not, not, I'm sure not, not a ton. He said, you know, I, I'll, I'll be with you in this venture. He said, but here's what I want you to do. You're going to buy this, you know, this type of merchandise. I think it was a textile. And uh, don't sell it until I tell you to. Okay, he buys it. He buys the whole lot because he figures if he's got the Rebbe's blessing and the Rebbe's investment, can't lose, right? Can't lose. So just he buys out the entire stock in the world of this one thing. Well, as you might imagine, and if you've heard me tell this story before, or if you know this story, so you know what happens, is immediately the price begins to tank. The worldwide price of whatever this was, the value of this begins to absolutely hemorrhage. It's tanking. So this guy comes in a panic back to the Rebbe and he says, Rebbe, if we're losing money, it's going down. Should I sell? No, hold. All right, it keeps on going down. The guy's panicked. He comes back, hold. A third time, hold. Eventually it starts picking back up. And the price increases. I'm not talking about Bitcoin. This is something else. So anyway, the price starts increasing. And at this point, there's a profit to be made. He comes back to the Rebbe and he says to the Rebbe, can I sell? He says, no, keep on holding it. And at some point, something happened in the world that there was a necessity for this one item. This guy, the the price skyrocketed. The Rebbe said, at this point, sell. He sold, he made a killing. Comes back to the Rebbe with a check. Says, here's your... Here's a, a, a contribution, a donation, plus he, here's your investment, profits, plus contribution. And he says to the Rebbe, Are you, uh, I'm ready for the next partnership. <laughs> and the Rebbe says, not happening. <laughs> not happening. Not with such a difficult partner. What's the message? This guy panicked. If you really believe, don't panic. 
It's almost, and I hate making things either or in black and white, but in this context, maybe it helps. Do you believe in the blessing of a tzaddik or not? Do you believe that it's going to work out or not? In the case of our Torah portion, do you believe in God or not? God says, don't work the seventh year, which means that in year seven, the land is not you, the, 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 the farm, the field is essentially not yours, doesn't belong to you. And year eight, well, you didn't plant in year seven, so you're not going to eat anything in year eight either, right? So year six has to really give you enough income and, and food to last for six, seven, and year eight, which is really year one of the next cycle, mind you. But the point is that you have to believe in that. You, you don't have to. But that's what the Torah is telling us. It's what God is saying. God is saying, right, I got this. I'm... I'm God, I can do anything. There's, it's not like I don't have enough cash or resources or ability to get this to you. I got this. The only question is, do you got this? Do you have the ability to let go? Do you have the ability to trust? Do you have the ability to have faith that everything will be taken care of? Or is it going to be like just panic for days? This mitzvah of Shemitah is so essential. It's so essential to faith. You know, the reading as we read the beginning of this... Uh, of the Torah portion. It says that these laws were stated to, by God, from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Why do we need to know? A lot of the mitzvahs were uh, originated on Mount Sinai. Why does the Torah say specifically about this one, it originates on Mount Sinai? Because what is Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is the experience where God, God's truth was, was seen by all. Everyone saw that God is real. Great. But are you willing to put down your money on it? That's the question. Are you willing to put down your guilt on the fact that God is real? God is real. Everyone raised their hands to heaven. God is true. We heard, we heard the Ten Commandments. We believe, we believe. Wonderful. Great. Are you ready to not work your land on the seventh year? Are you ready to take a whole year off from working your land, working your field? You ready? How, how much? Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? You proclaim, you believe. Okay. That's why these laws are, were taught on Mount Sinai. Why these laws on Mount Sinai? Because Mount Sinai means nothing if not for these laws. Because what is Mount Sinai? Talk is cheap. I believe in God. I saw God. God is true. God is real. But you know what? I still need to work my land because otherwise I'm not going to eat. Is God really real or not really real? How do you know that Sinai is real with the laws of Shemitah? If you're able to observe the laws of Shemitah, then we know that indeed God is legit. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Kind of this, the idea of trusting and having faith? Okay. It's like the famous story that I've told countless times. The guy, the, uh, the tightrope walker with the wheelbarrow. And he says, you know, do you think I can, you know, walk this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And everyone says, yes. Do you believe that I can, uh, that I can put somebody inside the wheelbarrow and walk across? Yeah, we believe. All right, so who's volunteering? Silence, right? No one wants to raise their hand to be the one in the wheelbarrow as the guy walks across the tightrope. Why? Because it's easy to say, I believe, but when it comes down to it, are we willing to put ourselves on the line, literally on that rope, on that tightrope, on that line for it? That's already a deeper question. It's easy for the scholar to say, I believe in God. It's harder for the farmer. I hope that's making sense. It's easy for the one studying in Kolel to believe in God and to be honest. It's harder for the business person who needs to make money 
and is faced with a lot of challenges that challenge on a practical level, you know, in a very, in a very practical way, that challenge their belief system. I believe in God, okay, but this guy's telling me if I cut one corner, I can make, you know, I can make $10,000. Do I do it or not? One, I just hit one button and I can make $10,000. It's not so kosher, but listen, it's good money. The scholar in the yeshiva doesn't have to face that challenge. So they believe, oh, for sure. It's easy to believe in God when you're not faced with a challenge. The farmer had the ultimate challenge. Do you believe in God? Do you trust in God to the point that you're willing to take a year off from your field? That's the question. It's, it's incredible. All right, back inside. Let's go back inside and see. Um, I think we finished. I think we finished the, the text. So we read about the Shemitah year. We read about the Jubilee year, which is seven cycles of sabbatical years. Year 50. Now it's on to Rashi. Wow. It's a long Rashi. All right, Rashi asked the question that we asked before, gives the simple and the, the straightforward answer. What relevance does the subject of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, have to do with Mount Sinai? Why are we saying that God told Moses this mitzvah on Mount Sinai? Were not all the commandments dated from Sinai? Didn't, didn't God tell Moses all of the mitzvot on the mountain? However, Rashi answers, this teaches us that just as with Shemitah, its general principles and its finer details were all stated from Sinai. Likewise, all of them were stated, their general principles together with their finer details from Sinai. So what we're learning here, we're extrapolating from this mitzvah to all the mitzvah. Just like when it comes to Shemitah, God didn't just give Moses a general command and say, I'll tell you more about it later, but he gave him all the fine details on the mountain. The same thing is true with all of the mitzvot. All of the mitzvot contained, uh, in the initial conversation, contained the general principles as well as the fine details. I'm going to skip the rest of that Rashi. Um, a Sabbath to the Lord for the sake of the Lord. Rashi says, just as it is stated of the Sabbath of creation, i.e., just as every seventh day is a holy Sabbath day, a claiming that God himself rested on the seventh day, and thus a claiming that God is the supreme creator of, the, of, of, of all existence. Likewise, man must rest from working the land on the seventh year for the sake of God, for not, not for the sake of the land, so that it should gain fertility by laying fallow for a year. And again, I, what I mentioned before is really kind of trying to straddle both concepts. It is good for the land, but primarily, at least the first thing we hear is that it's a Sabbath of the Lord. In other words, it is a declaration that God owns the land. God owns the earth. God created everything. And thus, I give up my ownership of the land, so to speak, every seven years. The land shall have a complete rest for fields and vineyards. However, Rashi says, you may dig holes in your land. Okay, if you want to dig some holes, you can, but you cannot work the fields and the vineyards. Nor shall you prune. Rashi says, what does that mean? This refers to the procedure in which they cut off the excessive vine branches, um, which helps the growth. So he's, I'm adding that, which helps the growth. But when you prune, it actually helps it grow. So therefore, pruning on the sabbatical year would be like planting. It's something that's enhancing growth, which you're not allowed to do on the seventh year. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest in the seventh year. What does that mean? Although you did not sow it, but it grew by itself 
from seeds that inadvertently had dropped in the ground at the time of harvesting, that is still problematic. You cannot harvest that. You might say, wait a second, I didn't plant that stuff. It happened on its own. Doesn't matter. You cannot harvest on that seventh year. You shall not reap to keep it like a regular harvest, but it must be rendered ownerless and available for everyone to take, it, uh, uh, to take at will. What that means is that yes, the food doesn't have to rot on the, uh, in the field or on the trees or on the vines, but it's ownerless in the sense that anyone, everyone has equal access to it, not just the owner. Typically, if it's your field, it's yours. Leave some for the poor and the needy, but by and large, it's, it's your field. On the seventh year, it's not yours. Anyone can take anything from any field. Um, yeah, you cannot pick the grapes that you've set aside for yourself because, again, you don't own it yourself. Uh, those you shall not pick rashes, but you may pick from crops declared ownerless. From the ownerless stuff, you're also allowed to eat. Okay. Now, if you noticed, and I glossed over it before because I really wanted to get into a Rashi, which is right here. It says, the produce of the Sabbath of the land shall be yours to eat for you. So you are allowed to eat it? I thought you're not allowed to eat it. No. You're allowed to eat from it, but it's not yours. In other words, the field, the land officially, biblically, doesn't belong to you in the seventh year. So anyone can eat from it, including you. You don't have to starve in the, in the, in the seventh year. Here we go. Although I have prohibited the produce of the Shemitah year to you, I did not prohibit you to eat it or derive benefit from it, only that you should not treat it as if you were its owner. Rather, everyone is deemed equal regarding the use of the Shemitah year's produce, you, your slaves, your hired worker and resident, etc. Okay. Let's skip that Rashi. Sabbatical years. Okay, so that's basically the, the, the upshot of it. The upshot is every seven years is the sabbatical year. The field, the land essentially doesn't, biblically does not belong to you anymore. Uh, does not belong to you in that year. It's ownerless. Anyone can have from it. You can't work it. You can't prune it. You can't uh, formally work the field like it's yours. Whoever wants can pick and take. All right, um, and you shall count for yourself seven sabbatical years. So Rashi says, one might think that we should observe seven consecutive sabbatical years. Oh, that would be intense. And then make a jubilee year after them. Scripture, therefore, continues seven years, seven times. They're showing us that every Shemitah year occurs in its own time, namely every seventh year. We're talking about 49 years, not... What's six plus seven? Not 13 years or every 14 years. That would be weird. Imagine if you had one, two, three, four, five, six years that the field is yours. And then the seventh year is a sabbatical year. And then you have another, you have seven in a row. Sabbatical, sabbatical, sabbatical. That's not what the Torah means. That's why the Torah says seven years times seven. And the Torah does the math for us and says it's 49 years. Um... Okay. Proclamation. You make a proclamation. Here we go. Now, Rashi says, Since it says on the Day of Atonement, do I not already know that this occurs on the 10th of the month? So why does Scripture need to state on the 10th of the month? In other words, the Torah is telling us that you sound the shofar on the Jubilee year on the 10th of the month, which is the Day of Atonement. Why does it need to tell us both landmarks? It's the 10th of the month and the Day of Atonement. We know that. 
The tenth of the month is the day of atonement, so tell me one or the other. However, it does so in order to teach you the following. The obligation to sound the shofar on the tenth of the month, i.e. on the Yom Kippur, the Jubilee year, overrides the prohibition of sounding the shofar on the Sabbath throughout your entire land. Whereas the obligation to sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah does not override the prohibition of sounding the shofar on on Sabbath throughout your entire land, except in the court of law, where this prohibition does not apply. In other words, you're allowed to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur. That is akin to Shabbat because of the Jubilee year overriding that, that theoretical prohibition. Okay, and you shall sanctify the 50th year, Rashi asks how, at its commencement. This jubilee is sanctified in the court, at which time they declare this year is holy. Mukudeshet Hashanah, this year, is proclaimed to be holy. That's what they declare at the beginning of the 50th year. Rabbi Ari. Yeah. So this says that, if I read, if I'm understanding Rashi here correctly, I know that in Rosh Hashanah, you don't blow the shofar if it shops. Correct. But for the Jubilee year, you do blow the shofar on Yom Kippur. Correct. And it says it overrides Yom Kippur. Correct. Because of the mitzvah of the Jubilee year, so in general, you're asking, a, you're pointing out something very important, um, and it leads me to the following. In general, there's a protocol for what you do when two obligations bump up against each other. In this case, it's an obligation and a prohibition. So the rule is, the rule of thumb is, if you have an obligation and then you have a prohibition, the obligation overrides the prohibition. That's why, for example, famous example is circumcision. If a child's, if a baby's bris is on Shabbat, guess what? You do the bris. I know this, I can't say firsthand, but I know this secondhand. My oldest son, Nassim, Nassim's bris was, he was born on Shabbos morning, and his bris was the next Shabbos, Shabbos day. The mile is going, I don't want to get too detailed here. He's cutting, there's blood happening. You can't do that on Shabbos. You can't, you're not allowed to make a wound on Shabbos. You can't draw blood on Shabbos. That's why it says you have to be careful, even when like working anything with the mouth, be careful that you're not causing any blood. So, so how do we do that? How do we, how do we circumcise on Shabbos? Same idea, because circumcision is a positive commandment. Not working on the Sabbath, not is a negative, I, I do not do. And the, the positive mitzvah overrides the negative prohibition. So the positive commandment of bris overrides the negative commandment of do not do work on Shabbat. Which is why the mile is allowed to work on Shabbos. I'm kidding. Which is why we're allowed to do the bris on Shabbos. Yeah. So Rabbi Aaron, so why is it, if it's a positive commandment, to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, that doesn't supersede or override the negative commandment not to work? Excellent. Excellent. And you're right, it should override it. It should. The Talmud says the reason is because... For a technical reason. Because we're concerned that somebody may go ahead and carry their chauffeur for in, in the public domain when asking a rabbi, and that is not part of the mitzvah. Are you with me on that? Yeah. The concern is that you're not you're gonna not know exactly how to blow the chauffeur, so you're gonna take the chauffeur, go to the rabbi's house and say, Can you teach me? And by doing so, you're violating Shabbat. Not in the context of doing the mitzvah, but in practicing for the mitzvah, and that would be a problem. By the way, 
that took a lot of guts for Rabbah and the Talmud to say, therefore, don't blow the shofar. Blowing the shofar is a big deal on Rosh Hashanah. And Rabbah went ahead. It's called Gzair de Rabbah. It's Rabbah's decree. It's a big, it's a big deal. He made three decrees. Shofar, Megillah. You do not, well, the sages subsequently or arranged it that Purim can never fall out on Shabbat. It's impossible. Purim can never fall out on Shabbat. But if it did, theoretically, you would not read the Megillah for the same reason. The second one, the last one is Lulav. Uh, when Sukkot falls out on Shabbat, you do not shake the Lulav. Every year it happens. Every year, it's not like if it, if it falls out. What, every Sukkot is an eight-day holiday. Seven, eight-day holiday. So it's guaranteed to have at least one of the days being Shabbat. On Shabbat, you do not shake the Lulav and the Esro. You don't do it. Why not? Gzeir de Rabbah. Rabbah's decree. Because what happens if there's a question about the Lulav and the Esro? You go to the rabbi's house, you carried problem, and you, you weren't doing a mitzvah. You were getting ready to do a mitzvah. Okay, so you can't, you can't override a prohibition because you're preparing for a mitzvah. That's not how that works. Does that make sense? By the way, you know what the really cool thing is? You take those three mitzvot, the last letter, and it spells the name Rabbah. Think about it. Shofar, shofar is a resh. Shofar, resh. Lulav, bet. Megillah, hey. Resh, bet, hey, Rabbah. That was his name. He was, that was his name O, as the kids like to say. So Rabbah makes this decree to say on Shabbat, Lulav, sorry, Shofar, Lulav, Megillah, we don't do. I, it's a positive commandment. Okay, but we're worried that not in the commission of the mitzvah, but in the preparation for the commission of the mitzvah, you might, in fact, transgress a biblical prohibition, and therefore, we're not doing it. Okay, that is, um, that is a little bit about, the, about that. But when it comes to the Jubilee year, the understanding is that it's not, every, it's not, a, not everyone is sounding the shofar. It's done by the court. Mark, remember your, your, the, the context here, right? The Jubilee year, that shofar blast is sounded by the court. So it's only one body that's sounding the shofar. So we're not concerned that everybody... Every Chaim and, uh, and Yankel and whatever is going to run to the rabbi and ask how to blow the shofar. It's done by the court. So therefore, it's not a problem. We're not concerned about this, uh, this transgression. Okay, back inside. Let's, uh, let's continue. Rabbi, to, yeah. Quick question. Sure. Was uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, was he rabbi? No, he was not. No. What well, my note here says, after the destruction of the base at Mikdash, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, the head of the highest court, the great Sanhedrin, decreed that the shofar may not be blown on Shabbos other than in the places where courts were located. Interesting. As people carry the shofar for Amos uh, in the in public domain. Right. It could be that he was the one that initially did it, and maybe Rabbah formulated it as a formal, uh, as a formal ban with the rationale of what's going on. It would be it would be prudent to look up the uh, to look up the 
the source over there, because it's known, these are known as Gzeira de Rabbah, as Rabbah's decree. It, again, as I mentioned before, even as the acronym. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai lived well before Rabbah. So it sounds like the origination was Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, but maybe the official formulation and articulation happened through Rabbah. But that would be an interesting, um, his, uh, you know, like little uh, chrono- chronology to look at. What I have here concludes the prohibition suggested by our verse is an uh, as, asma, as, asmachta, right? An allusion by the Torah to a law of rabbinic origin, right? And, that's, and this is Ramban said that. Yeah, that's great. So asmachta is a great technique where the rabbis, when they legislated something, the rabbis said, "Look, we're not coming. We're not coming up with this out of thin air. There's a verse that you could read that kind of supports this idea. Not that that's what the verse says definitively, but there's you can. It's asmachta means kind of leaning on something, like it's a support. It's a verse of support." It's not the origin, but it's a supporting, supporting verse. Okay. Um, when, when did Rabbah live? Rabbah lived much later, a few hundred years later. Rabbah was, just so you know, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai was a Tana. Tana means he's from the generation of the Mishnah. Rabbah was from the generation of the Gemara, which was a few hundred years later. I, but Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, within, within those eras, the Tanoic era and the Amoraic era, I'm not sure where they fell. Was Rabbi Yochanan Zake a latter Talmud and Rabbah an earlier Amora? I, I don't know exactly where, you know, I don't know the timeline. I'm sure we can look it up online somewhere. It's, it's, uh, it's, there are some, certainly books that give you, you know, the, the top figures and, and their, their exact dates of, of, of when they lived. But it is interesting. Yeah, Ray, jump in. Hold on. Don't, uh, don't forget to unmute. Hold on. It looks like you're muted somehow. You got it? Hold on. Did yes. You? Yeah, you're good. We Who got you. was Rabba? Rabba, well, his name was Rabba. Rabba, which kind of means like rabbi. Um, his real name, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember his real name. But there's Rabba. Rabba, that's, that's what he was called. He was an Amora. He's very prominently, very prominently cited in the Talmud. There's Abaya, there's Rava, there's Rabba. Rabba was her teacher. These like these are like the some of the the biggest names in the Gemara itself. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, of course, was the one who smuggled himself out of Jerusalem to engage with the Roman emperor and general, Roman general Vespasian, who became the Roman emperor, to ask for a place where Torah study could continue after the temple's destruction. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai actually was alive when the temple was functioning and saw its destruction and lived afterwards as well in that first generation. Who was the one that hid in the, in the cave? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Oh. And that's a similar, similar era though, similar era, where in the years following the destruction of the temple, the Romans started really uh, putting, putting uh, heavy restrictions on teaching Torah. And Rabbi, uh, um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai flaunted some of that, and, uh, and he had to hide in a cave for a while. That's when he formulated a lot of the mystical teachings that we know and love in the Zohar, Kabbalah, etc. Okay, so back inside. Um, and of course, Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai's yard site is this week on Thursday, Lagba Omer, day of great celebration. He said before his passing, don't mourn my passing, but celebrate my life. And so every year we celebrate his life on Lag Baomer. Okay, here we go. Yovel, 
Why is it, what is the name Yovel? In case you were wondering, what does it mean, Yovel? We know what Shemitah means, sabbatical year, Shabbat Shabbat, but what, is, what does Yovel mean? It is called Yovel, meaning ram's horn, ram's horn, because of the shofar that is sounded upon its commencement, right? We just said that you sound the shofar when, it, uh, when, when that year begins. So ram's horn is called a Yovel. There you go. And there's a Rashi on, on Exodus 19, as the, with the shofar blast carries on. In the context of the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the Torah uses the word Yovel in the context of a shofar sounding. So Yovel is connected with the shofar. Okay, um, each man returns to his property. Rashi says that the fields revert to their owners. <coughs> it does not mean that the owner must return to his field, but that the ownership of the field returns to the one who had sold it initially. Okay. Let's continue with some Rashi's. Let's see. Um, okay. Okay, reading two. This is a short one, and we can, we can do this one as well and be current, okay, for Monday, because Monday is day two of the week, so reading two. Let's take a look. When you make, and when you make a sale to your fellow Jew, or make a purchase from the hand of your fellow Jew, you shall not wrong one another. Look at that. Al tonu ish es achiv. Do not wrong the other. That refers to, and it, what's included in that prohibition is price fraud. Price gouging. You know what happened when COVID hit? With the masks and the gloves? You remember that? The price gouging? So, I mean, look, supply and demand is one thing. But price gouging? Artificially inflating or manipulating a marketplace to profit in a way that is exorbitant is prohibited by biblical law. When you sell or buy, you shall not wrong one another. If you are defrauding someone else, price fraud, either as the seller or the buyer, or manipulating a market as a seller or a buyer, it's a problem. By the way, this deals, this can also be relevant to things like NFTs and crypto. I mean, these are real and very relevant, real and very relevant laws in all times, including in modern times as well. Let's continue with verse 15. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall purchase from your fellow Jew. According to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. What that means is like this. Every 50 years, the land reverts back to the original owner. So if you sell a field to your fellow Jew in year 40 of the Jubilee year, sorry, of the, of the Jubilee cycle, that means in 10 years, you get it back, so you're not going to sell it full price. <laughs> you're essentially renting it or leasing it to the guy for 10 years. So that's why you're going to figure out, you're going to prorate the cost according to the number of years that he has. The more the remaining years, you shall increase his purchase price. And the fewer the remaining years, you shall decrease his purchase price because he's selling you a number of crops. In other words, if, you buy a, if, you, if you're selling land or buying land at the beginning of the 50-year cycle, you got 50 years. Pay full price. If you're buying it halfway in, all right, halfway in, buying it, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, the MLB app. You know MLB? MLB, Major League Baseball. They have an app where you can watch the games. 
If you buy it in the beginning of the season, they charge you a few hundred dollars. If you buy it toward the end of the season, <laughs> they're not going to charge you full price. Who's going to pay full price? So they'll charge you a little bit of a discount. Prorated discount. I don't think it's exactly day for day prorated, but they'll, they'll give you a bit, of a, a bit of a deal. Do I have a deal for you? You want to watch just the playoffs? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll hook you up. By the way, Kan HaMokim, here's the place to mention. Condolences to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Hockey team, not, not baseball, but hockey that got bounced last night at the hands of the New York Rangers. May it be for only good things. All right, back inside. <laughs> back inside. For all those hockey fans, for, all, for both of you that are hockey fans, for everyone listening. Okay, now let's jump back in. And you shall not wrong one man his fellow Jew, and you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Again, the idea of not wronging, lo tonu, ish, es, ish et amito. Do not wrong your fellow. It's important. You shall perform my statutes, keep my ordinances, and perform them. Then you will live on the land securely. You want to live on the land securely? You want to stay in Israel? You want to be secure? You don't want to be exiled? Good. Keep these agricultural laws. Do not harm and defraud each other. Rashi. Quickly, Rashi, then we're going to close it out. Rashi says, what does it mean to not wrong the other? Rashi says, it means wronging through money. In the context, it says when you make a sale or make a purchase, do not wrong one another. What does that mean? I shouldn't hit them? No, it means financial, financial harm. Do not harm the other financially. Um, and then three verses later, it says again, do, do not wrong your fellow. Here, Scripture, listen to this. Oh, here, Scripture is warning against wronging verbally. Namely, that one must not provoke his fellow Jew, nor may one offer advice to him that is unsound for him, but according to the mode of life or benefit of the advisor. Listen to that. Listen to that. You're not allowed to mislead someone or give them advice if it's really benefiting you. You can't pretend to give them advice while, while you're thinking about yourself and giving yourself advice. And if you say, well, who can tell whether I have evil intentions when I talk to my fellow in an insulting manner? Perhaps I did so in order to make him feel remorseful and repent his ways. Maybe I meant well. Therefore it says, and you shall fear your God, the one who knows all thoughts. He knows, God knows, concerning anything held in the heart and known only to the one who bears this thought in his mind. It says, and you shall fear your God. God is watching. Rabbi. Yes. Didn't that king take advantage of Abraham? In the sale of the land for Sarah's burial? Yes, yes. First he said, I'll give it to you for free. Then he said, I'll give you a deal. And eventually he took full payment. But there's two things. There's two. Number one, we're not, we're not meant to learn from him, right? We're not meant to learn. Number two, Avram, Abraham, actually insisted on paying full price. Now, Ephron, that king of the Hittites, did not refuse it, as he initially said he would. But... Avram, Abraham had an intention to pay it full price so that no one would ever say that you stole it, that you ganved it, that you, uh, you, you swindled us out of it. So he said, you know what? Full price, no, no claims afterwards. I don't want to hear about this again. Um, you will live, final Rashi, you will live on your land securely because it is through the transgression of the laws of Shemitah that the Israelites are exiled. Words, if, you do, if you don't keep these laws, that, that's what causes exile. Um... Rabbi, can I ask you a question? Hold on, one one powerful thing. And the 70 years of the Babylonian exile, when the land remained forcibly at rest, 
correspond to the 70 years of Shemitah not observed by Israel. Wow! And thus came to rest of Anipizim. Rashi says, based on, of course, the Talmud and the Medrash, that essentially the 70 years of Babylonian exile, when Israel remained desolate, was a punishment or a consequence, as it were, for the 70 sabbatical years that the Jewish people did not observe uh, um, carefully. How many years was that? If we did 70 years times 7, that is 490 years. There were, I guess there was a span of about 500 years that the Jews did not keep these mitzvot properly. And thus, it says that they, they, they were exiled for 70 years to make up for lost time, as it were. All right, Mark, jump in. Yeah, um, I know this sounds very pessimistic, whatever, but in the Torah, when it says, when you make a sale to your fellow, or when you buy from the hand of your fellow, do not victimize one another. Obviously, it means fellow Jew. Right. But does it mean it's okay to do so to a non-Jew? Excellent question. Excellent question. So the short answer is yes, but here's why. And it's still not okay, but I'm going to break this down. So number one, the world doesn't have this strict law of Judaism. So in Judaism, you cannot profit or gain in purchasing more than one-sixth off of the market, the current going rate of market value. You can't manipulate it more than a sixth to your favor. In U.S. law, for example, such restrictions do not exist. So if you're doing business in America, you're not bound by Torah law, right, to go above and beyond. Torah law is for those that are here, those that are required by Torah law to observe. So Torah law applies to, applies to the Jewish people. Now, that being said, U.S. law does have fraud uh, standards. So you couldn't, obviously you couldn't violate those because you have to live with the laws of the land. But the point is that you don't have to apply Torah law to universal law. It doesn't have to go that way. At the same time, and here's where the exception comes in, the Talmud does talk about cases where if holding a double standard, if a Jew holding a double standard, I'll treat my fellow Jew this way, but I'll treat you, a non-Jew, another way. If by doing that, it's going to cause problems and not be good, then you're not, then you're not allowed to hold that double standard. Then you have to apply the same law even for the one who isn't Jewish and bound by Jewish law. It seems to remember that Jews can't charge one another interest. Also, same deal, same deal. And, and one is allowed. Look, I, maybe I'll say it a little bit differently, but maybe a little bit clearer. That person who's not Jewish, who's not bound by Torah law, ask a simple question. Would they be allowed to charge you more than a sixth? You know what the answer is? Yes. Yeah. So then you're allowed to charge them. But a Jew who can't charge another one also can't saying a Jew who's bound by this law has to observe it, Jew on Jew. But, but if a Jew is, is doing a business deal with someone who's not Jewish, just like they could overcharge, and they're not running afoul of their laws, so you can also overcharge. It's not a, it doesn't, the Torah is not holding us to a one-way street, basically. That would be unfair. At the same time, but I think this is the important final point that I want to say on this, on this topic, is if, the, 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 if society is aware that Jews have a separate code of business ethics that, that are not being applied to them, 
and that becomes a point of contention, then at that point, for other reasons, including safety and security and, and maintaining good friendships and, 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 and uh, being good neighbors, then one would be required to apply the same thing um, across the board. Well, it's my understanding that Jews went heavily into the investment banking business uh, and the, the, the money lending business because the church forbade, uh, yes. forbade uh, interest be charged on loans. Correct. Right. The church adopted what the Torah says about no interest. Yes. And then ironically, that ended up on the Jews, which is <laughs> the biggest irony in the books, right? Because <laughs> it started with the Jews. Anyway, but yeah, a um, lot, lot of interesting history. So in some, and by the way, this, I, I think I want to end with this one point that altonu do not harm or defraud the other. Again, the first, there's two, there's two times in verse 14 and 17 that it says, do not harm the other. The first time is talking about financial fraud. But the second time is talking about verbal fraud. What's verbal fraud? Verbal fraud is misrepresenting. Verbal fraud is saying one thing but meaning something, something else. Verbal fraud is giving someone else advice and saying, you know what I think you should do? I have great advice for you. Meanwhile, it's not about them. It's about you. You're going to benefit from it. But you're presenting it as though it's good for them. We're not allowed to do that. We're not, about, we're not allowed to be duplicitous in our words because it is, because it's wrong. And God says, yes, you can claim, I didn't mean it. I, didn't, I had no idea that it was going to not work out for him, but work out for me. I didn't know. I totally thought it was a good idea. You could say that, but God's watching. And that's how the Torah reading, the reading number two ends. All right, in summation, we did two major themes today. Number one, Shemitah Yovel. And number two, um, pri- uh, fraud, uh, prohibition against fraud. And really both are about the same thing, that God is in charge. So if God's in charge, number one, it's not my field. Let me respect God's boundaries on the field. And let me remind myself that it's truly God's. Number two, if God's, really, if God's real and God's really in charge, then I'm not allowed to defraud someone else. I can make a killing. I can make a lot of money. All right, God will get me the money some other way. I don't need to worry. I don't need to scramble by using less than honest means to earn a living because I believe that God will take care of me. And certainly I'm not going to defraud anyone else or hurt someone verbally because, again, I know that that is, that is something that God does not wish for me to do. So once again, we see here how Torah holds us to a beautiful standard, which, by the way, is the theme of our current JLI course called Beyond Right. It's about the values of Judaism and the higher standard. That's reflected in Jewish law. Um, second session, not too late to join. Second session is tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Tonight, Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth, 7.30 at Chabad in town. Join us. It's going to be upstairs in the shul. It's going to be a great conversation on Torah's view on the environment. Very important topic. That's in person only. That's in person. Yeah, that's in person only. Yeah. Rabbi, what about a Jewish real estate agent selling... A, an apartment or something in Israel to another Jewish person. Um, they're not allowed to exaggerate a little bit? Or well, yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. <laughs> the Talmud talks about vocations and jobs where people really have to sell their souls to do. I don't know if a real estate agent is one of them, but, you know, there are some, there are some, uh, some jobs in which, you know, the, the morality is questionable. I'm not, I'm not putting, the, I'm, not, I'm not raising the question, um, I'm just saying that there is such a concept that exists of, you know, being careful as, as far as how, how far we go with this. I would say, to be honest, and to not misrepresent, and then you're fine. 
Make, look, you're allowed to make money on real estate. If that's the going rate, if prices have skyrocketed, I didn't do it. The market did it. I didn't manipulate it. It is what it is. I don't have to sell my house at a loss or at a less, uh, you know, less uh, lucrative rate just because you know I initially bought it at whatever value it was. That's not a that's not a consideration. You go by the market value. But if you overinflate it, if you hide defects, if you're intentionally you know misrepresenting or misleading the buyer, that would be a problem. Absolutely, that would be a problem. So, caveat emptor, buyer beware, but really, ca- whatever the Latin caveat. phrase is, you know, buyer beware, but really it's seller beware, right? Or agent beware, because we can't, we're not allowed to misrepresent. All right. Brother, yeah. You know, you know, quickly, you know, there's a story about the burglar who sees a deserted house, uh, and he thinks about breaking in, he sees a sign in the yard, and Jesus is watching. <clears throat> He walks up, walks on the porch. He's the sign above the door. You know, he says, Jesus is watching. He breaks through, and this giant rottweiler springs through the air to attack him, and he sees, just before he's attacked, he sees the name around his neck, Jesus. <laughs> there you go. In that case, not only watching, but ready to attack. <laughs> exactly. Good. Very good. Perfect way to end today's session. All right. Joy and Sarah and Mark and Faye and Ray, great to see you all. Great to study Torah together. We're back tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. We'll see you. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon. Take care, guys. Take care. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.